we continue our series on fundamentals of the faith, but particularly how that might impact evangelism, uh, who and how we might share those fundamentals with others, uh, especially in light of the, the religious experiences that many of our friends and neighbors bring to those conversations in those moments. So I've been repeating at the beginning of every class the framework or the, kind of the the foundation, uh, the lens, maybe is the best word, the lens through which we'll view our study. Um, and so that's what it, those bullet points under class description on page one refer to. Again, um, I'll, I'll, we're going to be presenting and discussing uh, scriptural principles rather than proof texts. Um, though, of course, we're rooting our study in God's word. Um, and as I just said, we're going to discuss, present how people with different religious experiences and backgrounds, including those with none, might respond to the fundamentals of the faith as shown in, in our study here. Um, I think it's helpful uh, and productive and, and even a sign of humility to acknowledge that believers and others in other religious groups are knowledgeable, that they are sincere, um, and that when we assign bad motives to people, um, while maybe perhaps they are, I'm acknowledging sometimes those motives are true, uh, but when we assign bad motives to people, um, Typically, the result is uh, pain, alienation, frustration, right? It's hard to keep those conversations going. Um, and so what we would, what we would do is, is start with um, belief in a good faith argument, meaning people are, not an argument, but rather a discussion, where we're acknowledging that the person's beliefs are sincere and well-informed. Last, Second to last bullet, though, I want to point out that um, sincerity does not substitute for truth. It's never the case. Um, you can still not know the truth. You can still not act on the truth, no matter your sincerity. And then, really, again, as I tell you each week, if when we talk about the, the way we would interact with folks um, from an evangelism perspective and, and really just being good neighbors, following the, the second most important commandment of loving our neighbor, it would be important to uh, seek first to understand rather than to persuade. And seek first to understand rather than to persuade. And I hope you all have experiences in life like I've been able to share where that has been helpful and productive. So today we continue part two into uh, this, this lesson, the church and her savior, salvation and church membership. Um, and then before we get into the meat of it, I, I review here uh, on page one previous lessons. So the first lesson we were together, uh, we established that God chooses or sometimes uh, you encounter the word elects a community, and the community he chooses now are those in Christ. The second bullet point there under, under previous lessons, the community God chooses is united in the Holy Spirit. And then we spent some time describing several works of the Holy Spirit in individuals and the church. You may remember that handout I gave you. It was like a table, right, a chart. It's like two pages long. Today, if you flipped through... This handout, you will see, and maybe ask yourself, does David really love charts? The answer is yes. Yes, I'm looking for chances to make a table. Like, Could this information be communicated in the table? Let's do it. Okay, so yes, um, but you'll remember that table. And then the third bullet point, the church is defined as the community of the saved because Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. That's important as you think about why we began with the community of uh, Christ, rather than how individuals get into Christ, which is what we're talking about today. 
And it's because once you know the nature of the church, you know the nature of Christ. Those two are inseparable. And if you know the nature of Christ and his people, then you know how to become in Christ. So the fact that uh, our, our mission, or I'm sorry, that uh, the, the definition of the church is, comes from Jesus' purpose or his mission, then you're, you, you have to ask this question, why do people need to be saved? Well, why would Christ come to do that? And we've spent the last 10, 15 minutes of our previous class discussing four realities of the human condition, temptation, sin, punishment, and redemption. And we were a little rushed, um, but the, the real practical value of that discussion is each of those topics may provide an opportunity for you to initiate or begin a discussion with somebody who's spiritually seeking. You may have a friend that's really dealing with temptation. You may have a neighbor that's really dealing with the, the natural consequences of sin. You know, their life feels like a punishment. Um, you may have neighbors that are dealing with feelings of guilt. Uh, and so the point being, that's why we talked about that from a practical standpoint. Then today's the class goal. I'm super explicit. I want you to know right now, like here's the conclusion. I'm starting with the end. We will identify five different descriptions of the significance of the death of Jesus. And there's one word that we use a lot religiously. That if your friend or your neighbor is a-religious, they may not know this word, but that's atonement. We're going to be talking about five different biblical descriptions of atonement today. And hopefully how that would relate to evangelism. That's, that's the goal, if I do a good job today. So um, we're going to start with God's action uh, in uh, atonement. God, what does God do? So I think it's helpful. I'm just going to read off the page if that's okay. I'm looking at God's action Letter A. Given the realities of the human condition, that, that's what we talked about last class, the biblical doctrine of sin, which is how it exists, the only way human beings can be saved is for God to redeem us, for God and His grace to take the initiative. Right? Salvation starts with God's action and ends with God's action, not mine. Throughout the Bible, God is seen as a gracious God who forgives sins. And if you'll turn the page, um, in the Old Testament, when God first reveals himself to his people, uh, and that's, that's to, to Moses in particular, comes this self-description that then all Old Testament writers, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, even Jews today, repeat this phrase about God, or some uh, version of it. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. If you're a really good student, you'll remember I taught a whole class for a quarter, in fact, on that very verse. So if you remember that, I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, atonement. So I think it's time making sure we understand uh, that word, because I'm going to use it several times today. But what we're doing is we're making sure we understand why we need saving, okay, and what that saving is. All right. So um, raise your hand if you've heard the word atonement explained as at one minute. Okay. Some of you, if you haven't, I'll be very brief here because I'm not going to use that explanation a bunch today. We're going to do some other things. But if you look at the word atonement, you can break it into those th 
three words. N-E-N-T is not really a word, but at one meant. And the idea is I was trying to explain to my eight-year-old daughter yesterday what atonement is. Um, I just said, here's God, here's us, we're apart. And thanks to her Bible class teachers, if that's been you, thank you. She knew that what keeps us apart is sin. And then I just showed her when they come together, I said, when they come together, what does that look like? And she says, well, it looks like they collided. It's <laughs> not exactly, you know, you don't collide with God through Jesus, but, um, but very close. I love it. Um, but we come together. That's at one minute. God and humans are now together. That's what atonement would mean. Um, and of course, the New Testament is super clear that that process is only possible through the death of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to talk about what does it mean that Jesus died? Like, why is it important to you, to your neighbor, to your to your friend that, that grew up going to church but doesn't go anymore, to, to your friend that, that was raised in some other uh, faith heritage or some denominational experience, why does it matter to them that Jesus died on the cross? What's the significance of that? And I think if you can answer that question for a lot of people, that's the, the step towards um, salvation, right? Like that's the step towards evangelism. So I'm looking at number two under atonement now. And this is what was really interesting, and, and I'm quoting here the text I'm using for this study. Uh, Dr. Ferguson, y'all heard me reply, refer to him a lot. Dr. Ferguson says, The Bible does not offer a systematic explanation of how the atonement works or why God accepts the death of Jesus as providing forgiveness of sin. Instead, he says, the Bible reveals a fact or declares a truth, but doesn't explain why or how this thing is so. And I'm being super honest that the saving significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus is one of those subjects. So I'm going to put it like this. Several years ago, we had Dr. Jim Baird to, to Eastside for a gospel meeting. Some of you will remember it. He preached on Ephesians. It was wonderful. And Heather and I took the opportunity during one of the breaks, you know, He's a professor. He studied at Oxford. I'm going to ask him the hardest question I can think of. And we said, why did God set up the system so that Jesus' blood was the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins? Like, why, why that? And the Bible, Dr. Bear was clear, it doesn't provide an answer. We have to be honest about that in our evangelism. It doesn't explain why. Now, we're going to spend time today discussing like, what the Bible does say about it, which is some very illuminating things. Um, if you're curious about Dr. Baird's answer, um, if this is not in the text, it's not in the scripture, but Dr. Baird speculated that because he said to me and Heather, um, God knew that's what it would take. That act of love is what it would take. So the point being, that's you're not going to find that in the scripture, you know, um, and we're, we're being honest about that. But if I'm looking at number three under atonement, the writers of the New Testament do describe the meaning of what God has done in atonement in terms familiar to the people of the time. And of course, today, I think still familiar to us. Uh, so these authors are going to draw on various experiences familiar to their audience to convey uh, the truth about the significance of Jesus' death. And they, again, they describe or illustrate a reality, but they don't, don't always offer a complete explanation of how the reality works. All right, let's go to page three. All right, so I just spent a lot of time talking about the limitations of the Bible's explanation of atonement, or again, the significance of the death of Jesus. But now we're gonna, we get to spend about, um, we get out 9.45, right? All right, I've got 27 minutes, and there are five of them, and I have some, some discussion questions that are, I think, important too. So the first 
way that of the five that the New Testament offers a description of the atonement or a description, uh, explanation of the significance of the death of Jesus is in the language of worship. And we might see, say the word sacrifice. Okay, so that's number one, sacrifice. Um, if you've sat through um, or if you've been present during the um, communion, the weekly taking of the Lord's Supper, you've heard uh, folks pray uh, in the language of sacrifice. They, it is very common. In fact, I bet today you will hear someone Thank God for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's a very common language uh, to describe the significance of the death of Jesus. And we see it here in the second column. I list the scriptures for you. Um, I'm going to read a few of those. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, we don't have time to read you know, three chapters of Hebrews, but if you're interested, that offers an extended discussion comparing the death of Jesus to the imagery of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And then the author John um, loves the phrase atoning sacrifice to refer to Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in John, 1 John 4, this is not love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now I'm in the right-hand column and just some time explaining why uh, and, and how this uh, explanation would be relevant to an audience. Sacrifice was the universal language of religion in the ancient world, right? Um, those of you who are familiar with Egyptians, um, even up to Romans and all the folks in between, you know, we have when we think of pagan religions, we think of sacrifices, right? Like building an altar and, and sacrificing a host of things, often awful things like children or people. Um, many sacrifices involve the killing of an animal, and so in the New Testament, it's very common um, to see the significance of Jesus' death as a sacrifice. What's interesting and important, not just interesting, it's, it's crucial, is that the sacrifice is always offered for our sins. That's the description that's used. And then the last point is one I'm going to make several times today. Um, one difference between pagan and New Testament thought regarding sacrifice is that rather than a sacrifice offered by human beings to God, or to a God, atoning sacrifice, especially in like 1 John, refers to a sacrifice made by God himself. So if you're ever reading the Old Testament and wondering, what's the difference between what the pagans were doing, the, the Canaanites, um, and what God's people do, or then, of course, what God does in Jesus, it's that God makes the sacrifice in Jesus. So we'll pause there. That's a lot at once. Anything you would offer, anything, any insights you have regarding the significance of the language of worship to describe Jesus' death? Yes, Mel. In my daily Bible reading, I've been reading um, Exodus and uh, Numbers, and when you read all of that, Killing animals and putting blood. Aaron had to put blood on their ear and on their thumb and their big toe and on and on and on all of the things that they did. And I just can't imagine that much blood. And this was on and on because you had to offer a sacrifice for every sin. And it makes me so thankful. It makes me look at. Uh, how we live today being so different than then it makes me thankful that Jesus died as my ultimate sacrifice. Amen.
one time, one death for all time. Exactly. Amen, Melba. Thank you for that. We'll continue to the next one. Uh, the next way that the New Testament commonly describes the significance of the death of Jesus is through the language of personal relations. The word is going to be reconciliation. Honestly, the, the best word, the most common word, if I were telling this maybe to an eight-year-old, for instance, um, even a precocious one, I might say friendship, the language of friendship. And um, there was a time in my life, especially when I was younger, um, you know, high school, a lot, of, a lot of angst. I was an angsty teenager, just like a lot of the people you raised. The language of friendship, like John 15, when Jesus describes himself as, as a friend, um, that, was, that really appealed to me. Um, and, and now I understand it, of course, on a deeper level. Um, so let's read the most important passage for reconciliation. is 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. If you're making notes in your Bible, this is the passage that describes reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, I'm going to move over to the explanation column. I tried through the spaces to show the relationship between the scripture and the explanation. Uh, that's what I'm trying to communicate there. So, these notes all refer to 2 Corinthians 5 and similar passages. So, I've I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I thought it was interesting and important to quote that the, this concept of reconciliation has its roots in personal relationships, but, but the commentators said, especially secular diplomatic terminology. So if you work as a diplomat, maybe the military or some other way where you have to bring different groups of people together, um, this, this term might be familiar to you. Paul describes salvation uh, this way. Humanity being brought into a state of friendship with God. That's a pretty new thought to me. I don't hear that from the Lord's, say, the Lord's Supper table very often. Do you? Uh, I don't think that's super common. Now, I do hear the word reconciliation, but the idea of friendship. Um, this is another way to say it. Before salvation or before the death of Jesus and my putting him on in baptism, we were, I was an enemy with God, and now I'm at peace with God. Um, reconciliation in the New Testament this is just a trivia it's used exclusively by Paul no other New Testament author describes the significance of Jesus' death in terms of reconciliation that would be a fun study Like, what about Paul's life made him use that term probably has a lot to do with the, the Greeks and the Gentiles becoming uh, invited into the church and then I bold again, the one doing the reconciling is God himself. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. Then the next section, I'm back down to the scripture, 1 Timothy 2.5. Um, reconciliation is often brought about by a mediator. If you're raising two boys, you've played mediator, right? Right, Samantha? I mean, you, you, yes, I got a head nod. Right, my mom was an experienced mediator. Um, we put her through the ringer, right? Y'all know this, um, disputes at work, um, dispute, legal disputes, uh, personal disagreements. Um, it's good to have somebody mediate. Well, the New Testament is clear. Who's the mediator of this reconcilia reconciliation? Who is 
bringing the enemies, me and God, together. Who's making us friends? Of course, it's Christ. Okay? And Paul's explicit about that in 1 Timothy, Timothy 2.5. The mediator is Jesus. In Romans 5.11, Christ is the one through whom we have received this friendship, this reconciliation. And then on the right, I give that same explanation that I just offered. We'll pause there. We have, we have time. What would you add um, about the language of reconciliation as we move on to page four? Anything stand out to you? Anything you would add? Yes, Doug. The whole process of us being able to be to be a friend of God depends upon God Himself. And he made it that way. Uh, when we prepare the communion, we bring when you bring that when you partake of that, remember that it is the blood of the new record. Take your time. The new way that the new covenant that he had made, and it depends upon him to he knew he knew that we could not live a perfect life. But he provided a way for us to be reconciled to him by through the blood of Jesus and a spiritual reconciliation so that the sins could be forgiven and he could forgive you a way so that you could be with him. In other words, that covenant is uh, just itself. We didn't have to agree to it or anything online like the Old Testament and Mount Sinai and they say, yeah, 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 we're going to do it. The idea here is that we have that way of reconciling in Christ by doing what he wants us to do, realizing that we're not going to do it perfectly of our own benefit. It's strictly God reconciling us to him and us doing the best we can. Amen. Thank you, Doug. I, yes. I want to Doug emphasized the most important part there. It is it is offered solely from God. God initiates, continues through Jesus, and fulfills the reconciliation. It is all God's activity, whatever we do. Thank you, sir. We're going to move on to the third one. Redemption. That is the word, and it is the language of the marketplace. And this is a this is a, like an advanced placement Bible class. I get that, but, um, you know, I've heard the word redemption a lot, and I even use the word redeem in a business context. Anytime you use a coupon, you're, you're using that word. Can I redeem this coupon or this free hot dog or whatever? You know, free lawnmower. I, I don't know. What are they giving away these days? Mike, um, you are using the same language that, that the New Testament uses to describe the, the significance of the death of Jesus, like Paul particularly, but even Christ himself, as recorded in Matthew and Mark, will use the language of the marketplace to describe what he does on the cross. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I mean, it's, this is just a beautiful passage that he would describe God's grace as riches in a conversation about the marketplace. Right? That's beautiful. And then Christ, I'm, I'm skipping down to the word ransom, which means to buy back a captive. Okay? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Excuse the typo there. 
and to give his life a ransom for many. And then Peter says, for you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. What was the cost? What was the payment that was offered for this redemption, for this ransom? It is, of course, the blood of Jesus. We could spend some time. There's a whole lesson to be on on the the necessity of blood, but uh, that's for another time. So, those of you who are merchants, right, business people, cashiers, um, exchange money, right? Like, this is a common language in the, the first century and then through the years to describe the saving activity of God in Christ. The word redeem literally means to buy back. Uh, the purchase price I mentioned is the blood of Christ. Um, again, to Doug's point previous, God does the ransoming. We don't ransom ourselves. This is impossible. We're held captive by sin, and God is the one that does the ransoming. Anything you would offer regarding marketplace language about the idea of redemption as a way to describe Christ's death? All the way back to Abraham, you see that Abraham's faith finally demonstrated completely to God in the sacrifice of Isaac was God uh, accounted it as though he had not sinned. Mm. We have revelations of Abraham's different sins. We all sin. But God said, through your faith, through your complete trust in me and what I've said about Isaac, he accounted his faith as righteousness and did not count him as guilty in their relationship. Thank you, Wes. That is a perfect comment to add here. Accounting, right? That's I can hear that, right? That's business. That's marketplace. That's money. And that just helps us understand that God gave the credit in that case. Thank you, Wes. Excellent. The next one is for all you people. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? But it's for all you people who made lawyer jokes in your life. All right? If you've done it, this one's for you, all right? You might go easier on that in the future, okay? And especially be wary of saying them around my wife. She will come after you, okay? You're not going to slide by. You're not going to slide by, all right? And that is because it is very common... You might have even seen the word in Romans in particular. The word justification, when you come across that in the New Testament, that is a law word. So the language of court is used to describe the work of, of uh, God in Jesus. Romans 4 and then Romans 5. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That word is a legal word. Romans 5.18, consequently, just as one trespass, right, breaking the law, resulted in condemnation for all people. That's like a sentence, right? You're condemned to death, right? Mm -hmm. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And I put in brackets there that some translations, including the Revised Standard Version, don't, they don't even use the word justification. They use the word acquittal, which we, we if you've watched Law and Order, you know, okay, is a... Um, is a legal word. Okay, if you've, if you've read the newspaper about a crime committed and a jury trial, acquittal is often translated um, and instead of justification. So I'm now in the right-hand column for explanation. Justification was a legal term meaning to be declared righteous. And in the secular context, meaning not having to do with God, to be justified was to be approved by the king. So instead of a, a judge, like we might think with a, a robe, in their context, the, original, the, the first century context, 
Think of a king determining guilty, innocent, approved, not approved. Right? And so the vision is, in the New Testament, God is the king who has pronounced a verdict that entirely alters the condition of the person standing before him. And God's verdict is this. Guilty, but pardoned. If you have Christ, if you've been buried with Christ, if you've been clothed with Christ, you are guilty, but pardoned. And I put that in particular rather than not guilty. Because we are guilty, but Christ is the one, Christ's blood gives us the pardon. The punishment isn't executed, right? And again, the emphasis here is on God doing the declaration of righteousness. God is the one acquitting you or saying, hey, you're guilty, but you've been pardoned by the blood of Christ. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer for that to ring true. You don't have to have ever been in court for that to ring true, right? That feeling of guilt that, that's, that arises in us as we become older. Um, if, as someone who um, was baptized as, uh, in my late teens, early 20s, um, I can't remember exactly the date. I'd have to think about it. I was keenly aware of that feeling of guilt sometimes. Right? Like the, I knew how I had offended God, even if I couldn't articulate it. I'll pause here. Um, we have time. Anything about the language of the law court? The language of justification. Do you think it's important to remember? Often we deal with uh, the results of our sins in our lives, even though we are pardoned and found not guilty before God or pardoned before God. There is a difference between natural results in this physical universe and God's relationship with us. We are seeking to be pardoned, seen as pure as Abraham was, not found guilty of our sins as Abraham was, rather than to think that the natural consequences of sin don't exist. Thank you, Wes. We'll move on to the fifth one. Oh, Heather, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say in the legal context, too, there's examples of Jesus as our advocate and our mediator. And, like, if a mediator, especially, like, in a divorce case, to try and keep things, you know, out of court, to shorten things, to maybe make things, like, to, like, lessen the animosity, maybe. The mediator is the person who sits down and says, what can we agree on? Okay, if we agree on this, can we also agree on this? And it's as much as possible a reconciliation of the parties on the issues where there's conflict to bring about a solution. And that's what Jesus does for us. Like he comes between us and God and says, here's the problem, this is the solution, and brings resolution where there's brokenness. Thank you, Heather. Do you notice too how in, in Heather's explanation she brought a previous description of reconciliation to bear to this description of law. Uh, I don't think that's an accident, like that they would they would intertwine. Thank you, Heather. The fifth description today uh, is victory, the language of warfare. Um, from Colossians 2, Paul writes, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Those are military terms that the uh, Gentile audience in particular would have been familiar with. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So, 
Think back to maybe you know a little Roman history. You know that when the Romans had a victory, they would literally have a parade, right? And and I can I've read my history. I know like when the United States was victorious in World War One and World War Two, when the treaties were signed, when the war was over, there were parades through the town. That's the description. That's what Paul's referring to that process when he says triumphing over. Okay. And the question is, who's the triumph over? And Paul's very clear. They are forces of evil. And they are supernatural even. If you want to go read Ephesians, this group would be familiar with that passage, I bet. Okay, the enemies are supernatural. Um, not just sin, but, but the, the power and principality that would advocate for sin. Okay? Again, the emphasis is on. It's in bold. Can't miss it. Who wins the victory? God. Through Christ. So, um, for the sake of time, I, I won't, we won't add anything to that one. I put a summary here. <coughs> Military victory overcomes the evil powers. Justification overcomes law and guilt. Redemption overcomes slavery to sin. Reconciliation overcomes hostility and chaos. And sacrifice overcomes the need for appeasement. That means to make happy. Whether one thinks in terms of the temple, that would be the language of worship, personal contacts, the marketplace, or the law court, or the battlefield, God is at work. God is doing the saving. We're to the last page here. Uh, yes, page five. I have five questions. I doubt we'll get to them all, but um, they are here for you. I, I really, it would be, I think, a worthy exercise for you to finish them at your own uh, leisure. So again, if you reviewed all those bolded statements in the explanation column, why does it matter that the emphasis in each description of the atonement is on the activity of God himself. And why does it matter that God is always the one, as Doug and Wes said, doing the initiating? Why is that important? Because he is just, and uh, so his righteousness is something we can't achieve, but he gives it to us through his plan. So, Ron, that's so profound, because it means that we are dependent on the character of God. Who he is means that we can trust his decision. Thank you, Ron. Be holy because God is completely holy. We cannot be holy without being purified by the blood of God himself in the form of his son on the cross. Thank you. But he seeks us to be as he is and as Adam and Eve were before the fall, to be holy and together with him in a friendship relationship as well as Jesus is our Lord, God is our creator, we are obligated then just because he created and just because he has bought us. We are reconciled to him because of who he is and what his nature is. God cannot exist around sin. So he has chosen a way to make us pardoned from our sins so that we can be with him as pure, no longer tempted, no longer dying, no longer getting sick in heaven at some point if we remain pure. Again, we come back to First John 4. If you walk in the light after you are cleansed by Jesus' blood, that blood will continually cleanse you until you are in the presence of Jesus as he had judged Thank you, Wes. Um, appreciate that. I would offer that, especially as you think about evangelism, 
there's a notion here, I think it matters, there's a notion of relief. You are not responsible for the saving work. Now, next week we're going to talk about your response to God's action, because you are responsible for that. But there's a relief. God, this just holy God, has done the work right, through Jesus. The next one, number two, uh, I asked this question. I think it's important to think about. Which of these descriptions of the reality of atonement do you personally connect with? And I'll start with mine. It doesn't have anything to do with my job or anything like that. So the fancy word for um, that hostility, that's the opposite of reconciliation, is enmity. It's the same word for enemy, right? The opposite of enmity, it's an SAT word, right? It's a word no one ever uses, is amity. Did you know that? Amity is the opposite of enmity. I had a cousin named Amity, dear cousin. And she was a sweet, precious, innocent soul. Um, she passed away several years ago, and I always think of that. Um, Amity, she she lived up to her name. So that's me, you know. Um, what about you? We have time. Any of these stick out to you? Yes, David? Uh, as a person that loves competition, I apologize for that. <laughs> the word victory mm. stands out to me. I love the concept of being victorious with the help of God. Amen. I didn't know that about you, David. <laughs> David said he loves competition, and he apologized for that. <laughs> no apologize, please. That's right. Thank you, David. The bell's going to ring in a moment. This is the one I want to draw your attention to um, as you think about uh, evangelism, and that's number four. God inspired five different descriptions of the significance of Jesus' death. I mean, God did that, right, through the New Testament writers. How does this fact impact the way you might evangelize someone? I'm interested. I really would. And number five is similar. If you think about that neighbor you have that, that you've been wanting to talk to about spiritual things, that you've been wanting to invite to church, that you've been, you're ready for that step in your conversation, is there one of these five that might fit them and their life experiences? You know? Do you have a friend that's really competitive? You know? And maybe the language of victory works. Um, you know, I, th I think those are the, so in your mind what I would hope and if we had time I would hope that you would actually literally right now picture that person in your mind and ask yourself would the language of commerce resonate with them would the language of friendship with God resonate with them um, and I'm not asking you to like sneak that into your conversation or something hey you want any battles lately you know that's not that's not that's not it but you know them and when the time comes, when through God's grace you're given that opportunity, like Paul often prayed for, uh, you'll be able to talk about the significance of Jesus with them in that way. Thank you all for a wonderful class. We'll finish the hair ahead of the bell here. Hope you all have a great week.